And welcome to Student Affairs Live, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his, and I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach. You can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. On today's live broadcast, we're talking about social class in higher education. This episode of Student Affairs Live is part of the Higher Ed Live Network. All of our episodes offer you direct access to the best and brightest minds in education. Be a part of our live broadcast by sharing your knowledge. Participate in today's discussion by tweeting us using hashtag HigherEdLive. Thanks to Erica Thompson for tweeting at HigherEdLive and monitoring today's back channel. If you have questions for our panelists, please tweet at HigherEdLive and we'll do our best to incorporate them into today's discussion. We broadcast Student Affairs Live approximately twice each month on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern. Today's live broadcast is powered by Platform Q, Education's Conduit Online Engagement Platform. Learn how to integrate continuous online engagement into your marketing and enrollment plans using Conduit. Visit platformqedu.com. All of our episodes are recorded. They're free and easy to access in the video archives at higheredlive.com. Or take Higher Ed Live with you on the go by subscribing to the podcast. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a digital-first agency committed to tailored solutions that drive real results. M. Stoner asks, have you ever heard someone say that you could take the logo off your website and it would look like every other institution out there? If you're cringing or laughing nervously, the upcoming M. Stoner webinar is for you. Join M. Stoner's co-owner and co-founder today, April 24th at 2 p.m. Eastern, just after this episode wraps, it's not too late to register. Save your seat before it's too late and learn the tools you need to make your homepage distinct and compelling during breakup with your home page, because I'm bored, moving beyond the universal homepage. We're tweeting out a link now to get registration to get registered here shortly. And now on to today's show. Today we're talking about social class in higher education and the new book, Stratton Class in the Academy, from our panelists. The book is officially out on April 30th, but you can pre-order today through Stylus or Amazon.com. Uh, I'm grateful to both of you for being with us. I'd uh, love for each of you to introduce yourselves. Uh, tell us a little bit about you and the work you do. Um, and we'll start off with Sanja. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Sandra Ardwin. I use she, her, hers pronouns. Um, I am an educator. I'm a learner. Um, I'm a facilitator. And um, I'm very proud to uh, be from small town, Louisiana. Um, that is where I will always call home. The town of V Dream, Louisiana doesn't have a zip code, but is home to me. Um, I am a first generation college graduate times three, um, which I am uh, very proud of um, being both a first-generation college graduate and somebody who has uh, the privilege to hold a PhD. Um, I study um, social class. I study rurality. Um, I study college um, or preparation and pathways in careers in higher ed and student affairs, um, do a little bit of dabbling in leadership, um, and also have the opportunity to be a faculty member in the Student Affairs Administration Program um, at Appalachian State in North Carolina. Um, and I'm coming to you today from my living room um, in the big city of Dallas, North Carolina. <laughs> awesome. Welcome. Welcome, Sanja. I really appreciate that. I, too, grew up in a small town. I grew up in a town of 89 people. We had our own zip code, but no stoplights. So uh -huh. um, <laughs> glad glad to have that. Uh, Becky, let's turn it over to you. Tell us a little bit about more about you. Awesome. Well, welcome. I am Dr. Becky Martinez, uh, and it's important for me to say that. I also am um, on my couch, and if you hear a seven-year-old, know that he's on spring break, and I will ask him again to be quiet. 
Uh, and then I think that that like really is this whole class thing. Um, so it was a kind of a perfect space to be. Uh, I live in California, Hemet, California, not unless your grandparents have lived there. Do you know where that's at? So it's Southern California. I am a facilitator, consultant, trainer um, with a focus on organizational change and social justice. And I have found a love having conversations and doing work around social class identity, classism, uh, race, uh, particularly as a, somebody who's multiracial and then general broad social justice. I too identify as a first generation college student with lots of letters in back of their name and still don't know what the hell that means at times. Um, <laughs> I do know that it means that I get different treatments and I have more access and I'm still figuring out how to balance that with my three minute drive home to my parents' house that have a very different way of being. Awesome. Well, thank you both for, for joining us. I really appreciate this. Uh, super excited to have this conversation with you and super excited to, to, to have the book uh, come out, uh, I think on Monday or Tuesday, April 30th is Tuesday. So, so really eager to mm -hmm. have that. Um, but um, Becky, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how this project came to be and some of the origins of this. And then we'll talk a little bit about what it has become. Yeah, so I think given um, Sanja and my background, we've been in conversations around this for a while. And I'm not actually quite sure if it was at SJTI, Sanja, when you were an intern, um, but there was a point in time mm -hmm. where we were talking about class in the academy. And um, I said, you know, wouldn't it be, it would be kind of cool if we could have a book that shared stories from folks like our background. So people that grew up poor, working class, that have shifted their class, however that's defined for them, um, as a result of higher education. And Sancha, being Sancha, um, said, yeah, we can do that. I know a publisher. <laughs> because <laughs> she had the other book. And so it was at that moment that I was like, well, damn, let's get this done. And so we just continued to have conversation of what it would look like. Uh, we knew that it, we wanted more than our voices to be it. Um, we didn't want it to be, quote unquote, too academic, because um, I think oftentimes in this work, we can stay in a headspace. And so we wanted to really um, highlight or bring about folks' stories uh, about what it is like to um, to straddle and to be in a place of confidence and struggle. Um, I think that that's like, I know that we hold often um, those spaces of, hmm, like I know how to navigate and it may not be in my value system or I don't know how to navigate. Um, so that is like, that's how it was, it was birthed, so to say. A conversation between some friends, um, mm -hmm. knowing that there was some stuff that was, um, not out there and how to support, really how to support people like us. So there's a bit of selfishness um, and a bit of how do we give back. And I'll add to that too, Becky. I think um, as we were, I think it was a NASPA, we were talking about it because we had been trying to present together at uh, different conferences yeah. on social class. And so we had some traction. Um, NASPA has a socioeconomic and class issues knowledge community. And so we had asked some questions about, hey, can we do this pre-con? Because an hour is not enough um, to talk yeah. about class stories and, and all of those things. And so uh, through that avenue, we were able to host, I think, two years um, of did. a pre-con 
um, with uh, our colleagues, uh, doctors uh, Jamie Washington, Tori Zavoda, and, um, and uh, Tom Seeger. Um, yeah. And so being able to be in that space and start to have those conversations, there also seemed to be a desire from at least some people in the field um, to engage in this kind of storytelling um, around social class. And there seemed to be a lot of emotion and like desire to explore that space. Yeah. Yeah. And I would add there was um, in every session that we have done, because we did do both the pre-cons and we've done the one hour sessions um, at both NASPA and ACPA, we would have people that would come up to us and say, thank you. This is the first time that I've ever talked about this. And they would mm -hmm. be, you know, mid-level or senior-level folks and entry-level that they've been doing work around equity or inclusion or have been doing some part of social justice work, and yet they never had, they've never had a conversation about it um, in an intentional way. And, um, and now we're doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Sandra, maybe you could tell us, that's a little bit about how this got started. Tell us about what the book is and, and how this yeah. is, uh, kind of organized, and then uh, and then we'll talk about some of the takeaways. Yeah, sure thing. So I think one of the things, as Becky and I were um, talking about doing this project together, we were interested, number one, in collaborating together because um, we share a similar um, background in our social class of origin, uh, and we experience that social class of origin differently because of the layering of our identities, right? So we both may identify as come from working class backgrounds, but I identify as white, Becky identifies as multiracial, and so we experience that social class differently. I experience it differently in the Southeast than Becky does out in California and the West Coast. And so as we were thinking about this book, we said we want to represent how social class is experienced not only throughout the academy um, and all the different roles people play within the academy, but also about uh, making sure we represent um, how people with different layers of identity or the identity intersection um, really showcases that in terms of identity um, dimensions, but also in terms of location and part of the country that the person is currently living in or representing. And so as we started to think out, think through the book and kind of what it looked like, um, and people can look at the, the table of contents. It's on the Stylist website. It's on uh, Amazon. Um, but you can see that we have really tried to think about how do we set up the book to where we begin the conversation around social class identity? What is it? How do we grapple with it? It's kind of messy. Uh, Becky and I have done some other writing together, and it's always interesting because when you write about social class, uh, often the editors or peer reviewers want to say, well, give me a precise definition. Um, and uh, I find that really hard to do um, because mm -hmm. there, there are some definitions out there. For example, um, Class Action, which is a great organization. Um, I think their website's classism.org. But um, offers some definitions, but it's not a clean, easy part of identity. I think, well, really no identities are, except maybe age um, has a kind of clean delineation. delineation. Um, and so we try to um, bring out some of that nuance and complexity in describing what social class is and how it's experienced. Um, and then we really, um, we really want to focus on stories. And so we invited mm -hmm. 24 colleagues, in addition to, to Becky and myself, um, to share their actual stories. So we collected 20 six narratives, if you if you count both of ours. Um, and we wanted to really create them from different parts of the academy. So you'll see we have a chapter on um, the undergraduate student perspective. Um, and those three students represent three different parts of the country, uh, public and private institutions, um, and have a different, again, different layering of identity dimensions there. Um, we have a graduate student chapter, which represents one master's student and two doctoral students. Um, we have three levels of administrators. So those representing kind of early career, mid-career, and senior um, administrators, as well as uh, non-tenured faculty. And some of those folks are on tenure line, some of them are not, but 
they're currently non-tenured, and then we have tenured faculty. And then we have a chapter um, from folks who have uh, shifted outside of higher education to PK-12, to other fields completely, um, sharing what their experience like when they were currently um, employed at a higher education institution. And so we really wanted to look at the breadth of um, experience and how it's not just an undergraduate or, or graduate student thing. It happens for administrators, it happens for faculty. It sometimes encourages people to leave the field altogether um, because of some of the tensions that happen um, around social class identity. So we're supremely grateful for those 24 folks and all their names are listed in the table of contents and with the chapters um, for being willing to share their stories. Um, and we did print the actual stories. So we didn't reword them, we didn't you know, we printed their narratives because it's really important to hear somebody's story in their own kind of voice and writing. Um, and so you'll see the actual narratives. And then for each chapter, uh, Becky and I did an analysis of those three stories to look for themes within each chapter. And then we also looked at themes across um, all of the chapters as well for more of um, a narrative analysis across all the 20, uh, four, 26 stories um, in the book. And then we offer some implications for practice for folks to think about how do we um, engage more around social class in higher education and student affairs. So um, it really is a book about people's stories and narratives. Um, I think folks in the field will recognize some names and not recognize others. Um, but I think that points to the importance of uh, knowing who our colleagues are and starting to talk about and engage around social class um, so that we don't assume everybody is of kind of middle or upper class um, backgrounds in the academy. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really cool idea for a book because it's not an edited volume, right? These people didn't write different chapters, but you got lots of different mm -hmm. stories, kind of organized them together and then added your own analysis. I think that's a, that's a really cool way to bring in storytelling and lots of different voices into this, but also have kind of a coherent analysis from the two of you. Uh, Becky, I feel like you were going to add something there. Yeah, I think what was it, what is important in regards to the stories are we didn't give them like here's what you have to talk about, um, and and I think some folks struggle with that in the beginning, um, but it was really you know tell us what your story is, and I think we gave them three thinking prompts, and so mm -hmm. what you will notice in the stories is there's not this okay so let me talk about this and this and this there's not a structure to it it is really mm -hmm. tell us what your story is. Uh, which I think is beautiful because people were able to, um, I mean, there are themes and then there are differences and it's not structured and it is like, okay, I mean, you have to have a certain word limit and blah, blah, all those, all those <laughs> boundaries around publishing. Um, and uh, they approached it from very different angles and ways and feelings and um, headspace and heart space. So I think that was one of the challenges and the beauties of asking these 24 people to be part of this project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Super, super cool. So uh, I know you didn't want to get like a precise definition of class, but I think it would be helpful. <laughs> like, what is it that we're talking about? Um, yeah. I'm, I'm curious um, if the two of you use class and socioeconomic status interchangeably, because oh. I do. Not sure if that's a good way to do that. No. Um, but I'm just going to think about how you've talked, how you've talked about that. Sure. Yeah. Oh, so uh, I think I when I when I put stuff into social media, I always say hashtag class is more than money. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that is the approach that I think we we come from it. Right. And so there's the SES stuff. There's the economics. And I think that that's important um, to pay attention to, because that, you know, really goes into, you know, what I can buy and if I can fly. And, um, you know, I, I'm in the middle of, of purchasing a car 
And so that's, that gives me options of what kind of car I can purchase. Um, that gives me options that I don't necessarily have to go to the grocery store and say, I have $47 and pay attention to that. Like I did when I was younger. Um, and it's so much more, especially when we have the layer of the Academy. And so, you know, there's so many different forms of capital. And I think that's one of the reasons that we don't engage it in higher education because higher education perpetuates some of that. Um, and maybe some of it has been birthed through higher education. I don't know if it's a chicken egg conversation. Uh, and so, like, how do I talk about, how do we talk about the elitism of higher education or the mm -hmm. differential treatment based upon degrees or positions or titles or where your office is? Um, because that is, that's some deep, rough, rough stuff. And we're not, uh, and we don't have the tools to be able to engage in it. And so mm -hmm. there are, um, there are ways of being in regards to how class shows up individually um, at the group level and institutionally. And how are we able to clearly name those beyond money? Because I think money mm -hmm. is is the easy piece. Mm -hmm. right? um, it's all the other stuff that is difficult and, um, and unconscious. Yeah. I think that there's mm -hmm. a lot of unconscious stuff. And so how do we increase our awareness to recognize how um, various um, ways of class and classism show up in the academy, but also in our lives. Um, Cause it's for me beyond the book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's not, and money is a little bit more complicated. There's, there's income money and then there's wealth money, the money that you have coming in mm -hmm. and then the money you have. Right. And so yes. those can be different things, but then also status and how people see you. And then, yeah, things like um, what, if you're a faculty member, what discipline you're in. Right. People maybe have perceptions about that, um, the clothes you wear, where your office is, how many windows you have, all sorts of things. And so uh, yep. uh, educational background and not what that is and what that's perceived. Right. Okay. Okay. So yep. do you want to add to our, our sort of expansive yeah. view of, of class? Yeah, I will. Uh, I completely agree with everything Becky said. And, you know, we often, I think, um, stick to the money piece because it's something that we feel like we can fix. Um, and so mm -hmm. in the higher ed space, we think, oh, we'll make college free and that'll fix it. Um, mm -hmm. But I would offer that it doesn't fix it. Like, hell yeah, it makes it easier, right? If we don't <laughs> have to think about tuition and fees and whatever, like it certainly <laughs> makes it easier. And um, I, you know, I think if you read the, particularly the undergraduate student stories, if we're talking about undergraduate experiences in, in the book, um, you'll see that students talk about not being able to find community. Um, and they talk about not understanding the systems and not be, understanding like conversation. I think about myself, I was an undergraduate student, 21 years old. Um, they sent me, I was being sent to a, a, a conference, like a student leadership conference, and um, I'd never flown. And my advisor was supposed to come with me and she ended up getting sick and couldn't fly. Um, and so I, I remember being at the airport thinking, I have no idea how to do this. Like, I don't know how to mm -hmm. go through security. I don't know the sounds a plane makes. Like, I don't know any of this stuff. Um, and you know, that, that navigational capital, um, or ability to move through systems that, um, are not systems you're used to, um, I think can really provide some challenges. I think about, you know, um, what I call hoity toity kind of events at universities or in life, um, where there's, you know, a gazillion utensils and, you know, all of these like food that I wouldn't normally eat, like all of those kinds of things and how, um, even though I now have perhaps a different socioeconomic status um, than my parents do or than I did um, as a child, that doesn't make those spaces any more comfortable or um, easier for me to move through. Um, and so I think um, when we think about 
social SES or socioeconomic status or income is part of social class, but it is only one part. Um, and there are lots of other parts um, that we need to think about and consider um, in how we welcome students, faculty, and staff on our campuses. Well, and you're pointing to this notion of, uh, I think, class is an, an interesting identity because I, I think even as our social class changes, a lot of our values remain the same. Uh, 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 and that certainly is the case for me. My class reality is very different from my class origins, and I find my values kind of sticking in the, with some of that, which has some upsides mm -hmm. and some and some downsides. So, yeah. um, I, I think I think that's that's a little bit different with with class. Um, well, you know, you've spent all this time uh, as co-conspirators uh, leading pre-conferences and sessions and as friends having conversations, and then you invite all these other folks in to share their stories, and you're looking at all these stories and all these very different perspectives uh, uh, from places in the academy and, and identities and doing all this analysis. Tell us what the two of you learned. I mean, uh, through this book project, you've obviously thought about and studied class. Uh, quite a bit, but I, I'm really interested in, in what kind of emerged to you that was maybe a surprise to you or, or, or helped you shift your thinking in a slightly different way than you had previously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, Becky, do you want to go? Do you want me to go? No, I, no, I think you're up first. Okay. <laughs> so I, think, I think, I think one of the things as uh, we got the initial, um, submissions of the narratives from the contributing writers. Um, the first thing I sat with as I read them was like, these are really powerful um, and raw and real. And um, in some ways I was, uh, I felt super indebted, not only for the, for the individuals sharing their stories with me and letting me read their stories, um, but also their uh, vulnerability and courage in being able to share those stories with the world. Um, and and, you know, a lot of folks, um, as they were, we were going back and forth with, um, you know, edits and things like that, um, folks would say, this was really hard to write. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you know, wanting to do more reflection and, and space and, and talking to other people um, that had written for the book, uh, other contributing writers about the process, because um, it's raw and real. And, uh, you know, in some ways, it's like standing out there in the open naked saying, hey, like, here I am, this is my experience. Like, and it's, it's scary, particularly for some folks who um, perhaps in the field are perceived as folks who have it all together, who hadn't had struggle or, you know, those sorts of things. And so, um, so that, that was the first thing, my first reaction and learning from people was, one, it takes a heck of a lot of courage and vulnerability um, to be willing to write for this book. Um, and um, that uh, so much gratitude um, for those folks being able or willing to share their stories so that collectively we can learn more about social class and how to um, engage in that dimension of identity in our work in higher ed and student affairs. Yes. Mm. Even as I hear that, I'm um, emotion is uh, in my in my space. Um, I, we I think that we hadn't anticipated because um, some folks would email us back and say, "I'm struggling. You know, this is really hard." Or I had tucked that back in you know this corner of my head and I hadn't thought about it. And um, and I, I, for me, and, and Sanja and I talked about this, like that is even the, like that could be a, a chapter, right? Or a book or an article, like the impact of folks that hadn't, that we hadn't considered. Um, I think mm -hmm. because it is what we would like, what she and I are so delved into. 
And so maybe, in fact, probably 15 years ago when somebody would have asked me to write a narrative, I would have been at that same space. Like, oh my gosh, all of this stuff is coming up. Um, but because I've been practicing it a little bit longer, I still get a, a motive and I can be more clear on what that experience is. Um, and we hadn't expected that, oh my goodness, I like things are being stirred in me that I hadn't thought about in 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the courage and the vulnerability and the willingness um, and forever um, grateful for them. Uh, I think that some of the other uh, things that... Uh, as we look at the chapters and it's uh, it's sad and frustrating and, and true is that we have tenured faculty members that have been in the academy and they, they're well known and they've been writing and um, you know, they have all of the, the accolades that they have mm-hmm. all of the um, ways that you should show up in the academy in regards to all the credentials. That's what I'll say, not accolades. And their stories are so very similar to the undergraduate students. And it's like, wow, we haven't changed. Mm-hmm. And so, and I'm not talking their story from when they were an undergraduate student. It is what their experience has been recently as a tenured faculty member or somebody that's been in the academy for a while um, in regards to not belonging or still needing to navigate and really quite not knowing what the rule book is or um, the rule book is against what the their own values are. Um, so there's just those similar stories. And so, um, so Sanja and I got to figure out what the next project is um, <laughs> around this. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that was, just, uh, that, that was, it was, it was a fascinating um, journey to see the similarities in that space. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I mean, you know, both of you have expressed great appreciation and gratitude for the, the folks who contributed and shared their stories. And, and I think that's great. And, um, and I, it also seems to me that you created something unique. You created a great gift for them by holding space for this and creating mm-hmm. space and, and asking the question and giving them time to, you know, to, to, to be engaged in the opportunity to think about something you haven't thought about for 20 years is a pretty remarkable thing. So mm-hmm. um, it's a wonderful gift that you've offered back to them and and then sharing it with others who get to then do this. This is this is almost like a research project, right? It's a qualitative research mm-hmm. project, yep. except the participants are known. They put their names on this rather than, mm-hmm. you know, participant number three said this. And uh, yeah. so I think that's really remarkable in, in there. What other lessons came to you at, at, through this project and, and you were, you were mm-hmm. reading these stories yep. and doing your analysis? I think one of the things that sat with me is I don't, I don't know that we, that any of the analysis showed us something that, like was completely surprising to us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the analysis um, uh, across the, the stories was really more um, affirming what um, we've experienced anecdotally, individually and collectively um, through, you know, having a working class or poor uh, class of origin um, and working and being in the higher ed space. Um, and I think um, it was really interesting to think about and, and see people talk about uh, kind of the, the um, what's the, I, and I want, I think the term we use in the book is the costs. Um, But basically, you know, this balancing act or or, or navigation and managing um, kind of all the different parts of who you are in terms of social class. And so, you know, we've had some of our contributing writers talk about, you know, I had to go back and like talk to my family that I was writing about this. Um, Mm -hmm. Or, you know, being in the academy, how do I explain that 
um, to my family, whether it's at, from the undergraduate level and what you're trying to study, um, or uh, you're a student affairs practitioner. And if your family is never, if you're also a first generation college student, which um, of the 24 uh, contributing writers, 23 of them, uh, along with Becky and myself, so 25 out of 26 would identify also as first generation college students. Um, and what is the overlap around experiences as a first generation college student and somebody with poor and working class of origin? Um, and where, where are those separate? Um, and so that's sort of hard, hard to tease out because so many of the folks um, did identify with both of those, uh, with the status and with the at the social class identity dimension. Um, but I think this thinking about, we always sell higher education, both um, the pursuit of a degree, but also the field at large as um, this good thing. Um, and it is, and what are the costs to that um, in terms of relationships with family, in terms of, you know, I go home to my home community and they are really proud of me. And they still say, you don't talk like us no more. You think you're too good now, you know, all of those things. And so it's really this interesting kind of sitting on a fence between I am who I was, I am who I am, I can fit in both spaces. And yet neither of them um, kind of accepts me in my totality um, in some ways. And so um, those costs, I think, showed up um, in the narratives, um, for me at least. Yeah. Yeah, I would say a couple of other things that surfaced for me um, were the um, it's more than about them. Right. And so obtaining these degrees and being in college, uh, whether it's as an undergrad or as a doc student, like they are sh shepherding and bringing in a community. Um, it is more than them. And it is not individualistic. It is not, as you can tell, I'm getting emotive in that space. Like, um, and, and I think that higher education doesn't necessarily work like that. It's very individual and get your degree and, and then pursue the next one. Um, but with these folks, it was, huh, like it is my, my, my network, whatever that looked like that helped me get here or mm -hmm. that resisted me getting here because of the cost, right? Or because of the, I don't understand, or I don't know, or what is, how are you going to show up once you, once you have these degrees? Um, and I think the other thing that was, um, that spoke volumes and it's linked together. I think there's so much links as we think about the themes, um, as we looked at the themes is that because of this space of it's more than me, then what is my responsibility to pay it forward? Right. Um, or to give back and this struggle of, do I go back or don't I go back and what does going back look like? And, um, and there's this internal dissonance that happens, um, around that and knowing that it is more than me. Uh, and, it, it, and not something that we necessarily didn't expect. Um, and it still hit us like, mm -hmm. oh, my goodness. Um, there's well, and I think so it's, it's more than a responsibility. It's a little bit of a pressure, too, right? Yeah. Not just responsibility, right. of it, but how am I going to I feel like I need to and how should I do that? And that might be all self-imposed. Oh, right. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and then how are we engaging that? Right. So how do we talk about that? Um, in our workspaces or in the classroom or when a student is coming to us or when a colleague's talking to us about that. And if we don't have a critical consciousness about that, we just may, um, you know, rationalize it out as opposed to where folks really are in um, that space of being straddling. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I think, too, this concept of it's an invisible dimension of our identity unless 
um, particularly for folks who are straddling, right? So if I'm walking around um, campus or even, you know, I go to the local library here in Dallas, North Carolina, if I'm wearing this, um, people don't automatically assume, right? Oh, she has a poor working class of origin. And so um, the invisibleness of that identity makes sometimes sharing hard because sometimes people are like, that's not true for you. Um, they want to put you know, assign a um, social class to you, um, which you may or may not identify with um, based on this combination of origin, um, kind of current reality, um, as well as this perception um, people have of you as well. Well, you're reminding me of um, one of participants in my research on college men who is from a, a working class background talked about, as you were mentioning, Becky, the, the pressure to not just be successful, but also to give back. And for him, he was sending money home and, and doing some childcare things, but then also kind of a survivor's guilt of, I'm not the smartest one of my friends. Uh, I don't know why I'm here and they're not, uh, but I am. And so now I have to be successful. I can't mess this up. And, and why am I here and they're not? Um, and it just creates a yeah. lot of internal stories that we tell ourselves and a lot of pressure and a lot of responsibility. Keith, right. what you say that reminds that reminds me of um, some of the literature uh, talks about this kind of combination of imposter syndrome with uh, traitor syndrome, um, and so mm. the that what you're talking about is this, uh, or how I, I hear what you're talking about is this traitor syndrome of um, like I think about Becky mentioned earlier like car shopping. Um, my car is about I just turned ten years old. I have roll up windows and um, so manual windows, manual locks. Um, and that's important to me, um, not because I can't afford, but I think that I was raised to think, well, it's going to break, um, and it's more expensive. So I pay for something that's going to break anyway, when, you know, my manual window is never going to break. And so, um, <laughs> it's not, it's always going to work. Um, and so like thinking about, um, you know, I think about like when I got my iPhone, I felt sort of like a trader, right? My parents, you know, don't have internet. They, you know, now use like flip phone kind of cell phones, but, um, so it's like trying to hold on to some of those things, even though those modern conveniences that I can afford per my income um, would make my life easier. Perhaps I, I still hold on to some of those things because I'm like, no, like I'm not going to be a trader because I've been a trader in all these other ways. Um, and so I'm going to hold on to these things um, because I, I didn't for all these other things. Like now I like to travel and I have these multiple degrees and I get to write books with amazing, brilliant colleagues. Like, so if I get to do all this other stuff, what am I going to hold on to that reminds me of who I am? Yeah. Yes. I, so Sanja and I have had that conversation about her car and I told her, Sanja, I'm sad because I'm not quite sure how long, more, much longer they're going to make the cars <laughs> that you can roll down the window. And like, there's a piece of me that's sad for her the next time she has to go buy a car. Um, and I, and, and I think that that is part of the struggle. Like, what am I, the more that I acquire in this middle upper class life, how does then that, that distance us from mm -hmm. something that's like lives in my soul, mm -hmm. right? And so the new car, right? Like I need to get a new car. I have a car that's a 2001, it has 280,000 miles on it, right? When I tell people that they're like, what? Um, and my mechanics like, no, you need a new car. And so it's like, <laughs> right. It's like, what do I buy? So if I buy something that is, um, practical that I value, that feels more in touch with my class of origin. If I buy something that's in the luxury space, 
then I feel like that that distance that further distances me from not just um, my parents, which is really important, but my values. Right. And so it's this like, what do I do? Um, how do I do it? What do I explain? How is it perceived? How is it going to be when I roll up in that, when I go on the, like to a family reunion, right? And so I, you know, there's always in my space of she's too good for us now, or she forgot where she came from. Um, and then you roll up in something that definitely says that, mm-hmm. um, whether that is uh, the representation. How about that? Because of the group and system stuff. Right. Um, not necessarily right. I sh- how I show up, but how um, the group and the system has me be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're both pointing mm-hmm. to something that I, I struggle with is, you know, with my, my class reality being different than my, my working class uh, origins, is where are the values from that working class background that I want to pull with me and take with me? Because that, that is what I value. That's what I'm committed to. And then what are just uh, silly patterns of behavior that I no longer need to adhere to? And I catch myself doing things like uh, being super frugal about things that I, I, I just don't need to and thinking, why am I doing that? But versus, and how do you balance that with, uh, well, these are my values. Like I, I don't want to get a new vacuum cleaner. I want to fix this one because I value not throwing things away and being disposable, right? Yeah, that, that navigating, uh, because it's so so deeply internalized, it's often very, um, until someone else points it out, I don't really notice that. Mm-hmm. 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 And we don't mm-hmm. talk about that, right? We don't talk about that in our family units. We don't talk about that with our friends. We don't talk about that in the office space. And yet it is such a, as you said, internalized, right? And so it's, there's internalized ways of being that may stress us out or have us not understand or feel um, devalued or more valued. Uh, mm-hmm. And how do we create spaces to hold those conversations so that it's not internalized anymore? Right. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's more conscious because yep. then you can wrestle with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear from the two of you about some of the um, the suggestions you'd have for uh, from from your work and, and from the, the contributors to this book. Some suggestions you'd have for particularly student affairs professionals, and that's our primarily our audience today, about how we can um, so support students across class identities, how we can support colleagues across class identities, class realities, and and uh, class values and culture, as we've talked about. What kind of pragmatic, practical suggestions um, would tips? What tips would you like to give some folks who, who want to be better around this? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think uh, so. The themes. Um, one of the themes that came out is let's just start talking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think we go to this like big fix it mode. Um, and so how do we rein ourselves back from that? and just begin to have conversations around it. Uh, One of my favorite questions that I ask folks is what's your class story? And that is uh, easy and complicated. Mm -hmm. And how do we um, just put into practice having conversation around it, knowing that it's more than money. I mean, we need to educate ourselves on what the concepts are uh, and that's important. Like what are the models and the theories and the latest things? So buy the book. Um, <laughs> um, or read an article um, and talk about it. Don't just keep it in our space because 
we have been taught not to talk about class, right? It's a taboo subject. You don't talk about what people um, make or don't make or how they live or how they don't live. And what's fascinating is we have this philosophy that we never talk about class and we always talk about class. Right? And that without can mean where I'm going to lunch without even knowing it. It's like, oh, this is what mm-hmm. I did for the weekend, or I'm going to go go get that $8 cup of coffee. Um, mm-hmm. Like, oh, let's meet over coffee. Um, or um, my car broke down, right? And so there are ways that we talk about class or what I value. Like I went to this meeting and I wanted to say this and be direct, but I know that that's not how I should show up. And so we're ha- having conversations around class. We're just not conscious that we are. And so let's raise our awareness to be in a conscious and intentional space in talking about class and then how it shows up in our office around spirit days or potlucks um, or expectations of how to show up at a conference or conferences themselves. Um, so, you know, let's talk about what we know and what we don't know. Um, that's one of the themes that um, stood out to me the most um, mm-hmm. of what to do. Um, Cause we can look mm-hmm. at policies and procedures and practices and we need to do that. Um, and we can't do that unless we start talking about it. And, and I would add to what Becky's saying that talk about it in ways that are real and not ways that are coded. Um, and so yeah. I think we love in higher education to talk about Pell eligible students. Um, <laughs> sometimes we'll talk about low income students. Um, sometimes we'll talk about need-based scholarships, um, but we don't actually want to say the words poor and we don't actually want to say the word working class. Um, and I've gotten feedback from some folks um, who have edited some of my work saying you can't say those words, um, yeah. that you need to say these other words. And I'm like, nah, if I'm going to write for you, I'm going to say these words um, because I really want to name it and not just stick to the money part. Um, and even in the money part, we show discomfort and, and um, close off our understanding because with things like Pell eligibility, um, there are a whole host of reasons students might not apply for nor be eligible for Pell um, and still have poor working classes of origin. Um, and so as we think about um, talking about it, I, I would encourage us to also actually talk about it and not talk about it in veiled ways that keep us in a place of comfort or um, appropriateness, if you will, um, in the academy, the headspace Becky was talking about earlier uh, versus the heart space and real space. Um, of what um, experiences are like for folks um, from different class backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and from Twitter, uh, Nikki Messmore mentioned uh, not identifying with the term working class because uh, her parents were disabled and uh, mm-hmm. had an annual income that was very low, but weren't able to work. So working class didn't doesn't fit for, for Nikki and prefers lower socioeconomic status folks. Um, so this, this notion about, um, I, I, I love, Becky's saying, let's talk about it. And then Sandra's saying, and then well, what words are we going to use? Because the words and yeah. the language have meaning and, and context, and some are academic and, and, and some have different academic definitions, but then how people use them and how people identify with them and how people identify others uh, gets really mm-hmm. complicated. And then as you're also mentioning all this other coded language to make people feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah and so I appreciate that, Nikki, sharing a little bit of your story. And how are we? Um, so that so I think there's meaning making around these terms. There mm-hmm. is, and how do they hit us? And um, what what are what are we comfortable in using or not? Or how do we identify or not? And how do we not say nope? You can't sh- you can't use this term and don't use that term. So let's have all of these terms 
come out and there's the stories behind the terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's the, you know, that's really the important um, piece to pay attention to. Sanja and I were on a campus um, and doing some lovely work for uh, a few days. And, you know, there was resistance of what are you going to talk about? You know, um, I, you know, we're the development folks. We don't want like ours, like, I know, like, so you're asking for some money. We're not saying that that's bad, <laughs> but I think that that's where people go to. Um, and I always say in privilege, let's use our privilege for good and not evil. Um, and mm-hmm. so we don't have that named as a bad thing unless I'm showing up in all kinds of privileged ways and treating people less than. Um, so mm-hmm. as I think, you know, from a class lens, if I'm just showing up as an asshole as Dr. Martinez and not like looking at the, um, you know, the custodial staff with humanity, then I'm perpetuating that cycle. Uh, and mm-hmm. so how do I stop myself from that? And I know I just cursed. It's one of the things that I like to do. Um, and you know, right. But you're not supposed to in a professional mm-hmm. higher ed setting. Um, and so, you know, how are we able to be in spaces and really talk about it? There is, you know, I do a lot of work and people hire me around social justice, um, or do some stuff around racism and people are beginning to think about classism, but it's a really scary unknown space, um, that we're um, not used to being in. And so how do we lean into that space of, you know what, let's do a staff development on social class and uh, identity and classism. Um, It'll be uncomfortable and known, but until we are able to get to those layers, that's where always it's going to lay. Yep. And I think with that, I think it it, is uncomfortable for so many people because um, we bring our class biases with us. Um, and so we are biased, um, and particularly we talk about this in the book, but there's a concept called the upward mobility bias, um, that, um, I think a lot of people in life have, um, particularly in the United States, but I think also, um, in kind of higher ed spaces as well, um, that students are coming to us because, uh, they want to change their social class and that may or may not be true. Um, in fact, some students want to come to us. I think of a specific student, I was at a, um, a convening at Northern Arizona University, and there was a young woman on a panel who identified as uh, Native, um, and she specifically talked about, I am here to go back and be a leader and elder in my community. That is why I'm here. Um, and so thinking about that, you know, sometimes we discourage students from going home, um, whatever that means for that student, um, because we think home is not a good place for them because they won't be able to succeed or excel or kind of whatever where we want to put on that. Um, and we, it's not our, it's not our, I don't think our role to tell students where they can contribute, um, and where their contribution is most valuable. Um, and so thinking about, um, how do we also understand for students who say, I'm coming here to get my degree because I want to go home and make an impact there. Um, and for us not to say, well, that impact won't be as meaningful or as big. Um, and so how do we, through this education and training Becky's talking about, um, recognize some of those biases like the upward mobility bias, um, which is a kind of a, kind of a piece of classism. Um, and how do we, uh, unlearn? Um, some of that mm-hmm. stuff um, in our work with our colleagues and our students. Well, this is the the sort of narrative about neoliberal perspectives on higher education, that it's all about getting a better job and earning this. And if you have to go in debt, you'll outpace it, right? It's all about the, the money. And, and, and some folks would want not to make more money and escape where they're from, but they want to get tools to better contribute to the communities that they value and they care about and they're a part of. Um, right. And how, how do we, how do we, um, I don't know that there's a lot of space for that conversation in, in higher education. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, even the name higher education. Right. 
right? Like, <laughs> um, it's so, you, you know, what is the language that's out there that I've internalized to have be better than going to a trade school as a plumber? Right. Uh, um, and so, like, how are we really looking at language that we use as they think about education, right? As they think about, um, like, why do we, I've been trying to use blue collar professionals more. Like, why don't we see blue collar folks as professionals? Um, why don't we name that in that space? And so, what's the language that's used to describe where people are placed and what we value and what we don't value? And so, cause like I need somebody to come and work on my plumbing. I, that's not a skill that I have. Like, and I will pay them to do that because that is what their profession is and that they're good at. Mm -hmm. And how do I see that as a value, um, you know, is equally, um, indifferent than being, you know, a doctor, mm -hmm. um, you know, being a professor, being an administrator, um, how do we find value in these other ways of um, making a living and being a person? Right. So. Well, and I think that the notion of a plumber uh, is a great kind of counter narrative, right? The, uh, and also about class being more than the income you make. I, th I bet there's a lot of plumbers making a lot more than tenured faculty. <laughs> but what's the social status of, uh, right. of being a plumber? What are the connotations that people have? Um, mm -hmm. I recently worked with a community college and they were saying, uh, send all your kids to be plumbers and electricians because artificial intelligence isn't going to solve that problem. Uh, mm. And what a great opportunity um, uh, to, to do a trade and then own a trade and have people work for you and run your own business and do that. And all the people who are coming to their programs were people who had family members who are plumbers and electricians. So they, they had some of the insider story, right, about what that could be. Yeah. Well, we're, 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 time is escaping us. I, I'd love to hear from each of you just maybe two more really practical suggestions for people who are, are watching or listening. Hmm. You don't have to hmm. both have them at the same time. I would say yeah. one um, that I think about that, that um, is a good partner with the increasing conversation around social class is um, have you done your own reflection and introspection um, about your class identity. Um, and I think to Becky's point earlier, like some people, like we hide it back in the middle, you know, somewhere in our head that doesn't come up. Um, and so, you know, how do we do that reflection on, um, you know, our areas of privilege and our areas of challenge and um, what that looks like. And then also not only analyze our origin, but like what's happening for us today um, and how are we showing up and what does that look like? Um, and what are our roles, particularly for us who work in higher education and student affairs, afford us to be able to do um, in terms of um, helping other people in terms of their own reflection and introspection um, around their social class identity. So I think that's a pretty practical way, um, whether, and, and I think we have to do some of our own work in order to engage in the conversations Becky's talking mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say, so that is where I would go um, first, as Sanja said. Uh, I think another thing that we can do is being able to take kind of a environmental scan of our office spaces and the ways that we do meetings and programs and develop budgets to um, really think about, huh, so, um, you know, what classes practices are happening right now. Um, and again, that could be at the high level policies um, and, you know, and that could be at the kind of more daily stuff around, um, 
you know, what do we talk about or, you know, what's our expectations for after hours networking events that we say that, you know, that they're called happy hours, like let's get together staff development um, and do some group, you know, some, you know, getting to know each other group and how does that have a class and classes lens to it? And how do we not stop it? Like, it doesn't mean that we say don't do it. Um, but it's being able to engage in what the dynamics could be and the impact could be on folks. Um, yeah. I completely relate to that. Um, so a quick story about that. I um, was at a networking event um, maybe two years ago, um, but this happened to me again recently um, in this past conference season as well. Um, I went to a social that um, they were giving out free drink tickets, which you think, great, like there's not a financial barrier. If people uh, do imbibe and choose to imbibe, they can. Um, there's not a financial issue here. And when I went up, both times when I went up to the uh, to the bartender and requested a beer, I was told you can't use that for a beer. You can only use that for wine. Um, and my initial reaction <laughs> is, well, okay, I'll take it because it's free. But like, that's not what I choose. If I'm going to drink alcohol, that's not what I choose to drink. I don't know anything about wine. Like I can get a thousand dollar bottle or a $10 bottle. It would taste the same to me. Doesn't matter. Um, but I'm a beer drinker, but that's not considered as professional or appropriate. Um, but I think that is rooted in social class and who drinks beer and who drinks wine. And, and what does that mean? It's also gendered. But um, mm -hmm. so as we think about the layering of different parts of identity, mm -hmm. but um, so even even things like that, what you're choosing to to eat or drink or whatever um, also comes with some class implications and perceptions. Yeah. Yeah. What are the norms? So, right. So what are the norms that exist in these social spaces and um, and what are we again? paying attention to how we're showing up in that and how others are. I think that that is, that, that, that's critical. Um, yeah. So I, I'm hearing, uh, do some critical self-reflection about your class background, about your biases, about your assumptions about others and the stories you tell. Talk about it. Uh, and when you do talk about it, be careful and thoughtful about the language and what language you're using and what that might mean to you and differently to other folks. And some of the coding, and then also be uh, be thoughtful about the practices and um, what you're asking of folks, what assumptions you're making about what people will be able to do and not do. Um, what what other suggestions would you would you add to some of that? I would say one thing as we think about um, particularly working with students, but really with anyone on our campus, um, is thinking about do we know what resources are available? Um, so I think particularly back to a conduct case I had uh, when I was. Uh, filling in for somebody um, who was a conduct officer. And um, the student would have never been in the conduct office had they known there was an emergency fund available at the institution. Um, and so I viewed that not as a feeling of the student, but a feeling of us as an institution in a system um, to not share the appropriate information that a student in crisis could have get, gotten the help they needed versus um, having to, ch to choose a different behavior in order to, to meet some basic needs. Um, so I think that is, is one thing, but not just on our campus, but also in the community. Um, I was out at a campus um, a couple months ago, and um, a student was talking about um, having to find their own resources and how in the community there were multiple resources for them as a single parent, um, as somebody who, um, you know, was low income. And, and the people I was sitting with at the table who were administrators at the university were like, I've never even heard of this. Um, and it was in their own kind of small college town. Um, and so I think doing some of our own work as well as administrators and faculty to say um, what's available on campus and in the community so that um, if it is a financial barrier or if a student needs, you know, health care or something um, or just general support, um, where what are the resources we can offer them versus just saying, you know, that's a really tough situation. Um, also having some um, abilities to um, help them along their pathway. 
Yeah. Well, well, let's let's get to the the resource we want to highlight is this this book. So tell us about the tell us about when's the book coming out, where they can get it, where they can find it, and, and what comes along with it. Yes. Uh, so it comes out in uh, on the thirtieth. Uh, at least that's when Stylus has told us. And that is, <laughs> that's one of the places that you can purchase it. So they're doing pre-orders now um, for those shipments to um, happen on the 30th of April. You can also order it at Amazon. Um, I don't know. I mean, lots of folks order through Amazon. So, you know, whatever works best for your needs. Um, so that's, yeah, we're, we're excited about it. it uh, it's been a long time coming, I think. And um, and we're I'm excited for the contributing writers to be able to see their story in print and mm -hmm. the impact that they're having on um, on campuses um, and hopefully in families and because for us it's so much more than in the academy um, and so how is class showing up in ways that they are shopping at the grocery store or talking to their children about X Y and Z. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'll add to that, if you don't want to wait, Becky and I do have a chapter that's already in print. Um, um, and some of the things Becky was talking about earlier around um, how we function in terms of norming in our um, kind of student affairs functional areas. Um, we have a chapter in the recently released book called um, Debunking the Myth of Job Fit in Student Affairs. Uh, Rish Tran et al. Um, are the editors of that volume. It's also a stylist book. Um, and we have a chapter um, uh, around the title um, talks about no, I won't have an eight dollar coffee with you, um, and so uh, that is is already in print. Um, if folks have access to that, um, in addition to ordering the book yourself, um, if that is not an option for you, um, you can ask your campus or community librarian um, to uh, order the book, and that way you can then check out the book for free. Um, so please know that um, that is also an option for you um, if you have access to a campus or community library um, in your vicinity. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I, I'm so grateful to, to both doctor, doctors, uh, Dr. Becky Martinez and Dr. Sanja Ardwa, uh, for being our panel today and sharing the great work uh, of yours and your contributing uh, folks and the stories sh they've shared. This has been really wonderful and um, got me thinking about a lot of things uh, myself. Uh, I also want to thank Erica behind the screens, who is doing a lot of tweeting yeah. and sharing the resources. Um, you can receive reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to the Higher Ed Live newsletter or browse the archives at higheredlive.com. Next week, we'll be talking about college men and masculinities with uh, Brian mm -hmm. McCowan and mm -hmm. uh, Dan Tillapa. And then June 12th, Sanja already mentioned it, but the, the debunking the myth of fit in job searches and student affairs will have the editors of that volume on June 12th to come discuss this idea of fit in student affairs in higher education. So those are two episodes on the way that you can check out. Uh, again, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Uh, thanks again to our fabulous guest uh, and for sharing so, so generously uh, with us today. And to thanks to all of you who are watching. I hope yep. you make it a great week. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Thanks. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.